In the 8th century BC, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jonah, and the Lord commanded Jonah to go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh to proclaim God's judgment against Nineveh. But Jonah, as the prophet, he knew wherever God sends the word of judgment, he also sends the word of forgiveness and grace. And Jonah hated the thought of bringing the news of salvation to the Gentiles. You see, at that time, Assyria was the empire that was oppressing Israel. And because of the Assyrians, the Israelites had suffered terribly and continued to suffer. And Jonah, he simply could not bring himself to bring God's word of grace to the people of Nineveh. So you know what he did? He went to Joppa which was a major port city in those days and continued to be even today. And there in Joppa, he boarded a ship going to Tarshish. And many scholars uh, think that Tarshish uh, is Spain. And the point of that is, is that Jonah boarded a ship and went in the exact opposite direction uh, to where God had commanded him to go. He couldn't run away far and fast enough. He could not stand the thought of bringing God's grace to the Gentiles. In the first century AD, Peter received the word from God. And in that word and message, God commanded Peter to take the word of message to the Gentiles. And Peter left Joppa for Caesarea, and he went to the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and he proclaimed to him and to his household, Christ. And he received the Gentile believers into fellowship. And last week in the passage that we read, we saw how verse 48, uh, Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Then they asked him to remain for some days. So Cornelius asked them and prevailed upon Peter and his company to remain with them for some time. And during that time, the news of Peter's visit to Cornelius spread far and wide. And it caused no small scandal. And when Peter returned to Jerusalem, he found himself facing criticism. And so that's the first thing we look at this morning. Peter answers criticism. And so we read here, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now you remember from last uh, few weeks how in chapter chapter 10, verse 28, how Peter himself tells Cornelius how it is taboo It is just not something that is done for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. You see, the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles have now been in place for more than a thousand years. And the Jewish people understood God's call to holiness almost entirely as a call to separate themselves from the unclean Gentiles and their corrupting influence. 
So as far as the Jewish people were concerned, there are only two kinds of people in the world. First, there are the Jews, God's chosen people, the holy people, and the rest of the world, the Gentiles, unclean, corrupt. And so the fact that Peter went to the Gentiles, it was scandalous. It was, you see, just something that cannot be done. So it was no small scandal uh, what Peter did. And they were saying to Peter, how dare you? How can you even say that you believe in God going to the Gentiles? And that is why in this passage we see Peter explaining himself and his actions. And it starts with his visions, the visions that he saw in Joppa, how from heaven a sheet was lowered in which there were both clean and unclean animals and how God commanded him to kill and eat. But Peter protested, by no means, Lord, I've never done anything like this. Don't you know me? I'm a good Orthodox Jew. How can I ever bring myself to eat this unclean food? But then he also heard a command from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. And just then, there were messengers from Cornelius that arrived, and the Holy Spirit commanded them, I sent them to you. Go with them without making a distinction. And Peter obeyed. And I think it's remarkable. Peter is often the butt of our jokes, and I think sometimes he deserves it. But I think sometimes we forget how bold and courageous he was in obeying the Lord. He knew that what he was about to do was a stain upon his reputation. It was something that he was not going to be able to live down. And yet he obeyed the Lord and he went to the Gentiles. He proclaimed God's word to the Gentiles. And, and when he saw their genuine faith, he was deeply moved and he was changed. He saw the faith and the repentance of the Gentiles, and he was also struck seeing how God treated the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers exactly the same way. Now, if you remember from Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the Jewish Christians. And notice what is happening in this passage. Peter sees how God sends his Holy Spirit to the Gentile believers. And then Peter explains the Spirit's coming upon Cornelius' household exactly the same way in verse 16. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Gentile believers also receive the Spirit of Christ. And by receiving the Spirit of Christ, they were sealed to be the people of the new covenant and the members of God's household, no less than the Jewish believers. And that is why we need to understand the criticism and 
Peter's response to it. How dare Peter welcome the Gentiles? It's actually rather, how dare he go against God's will? And that's why Peter says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And you see, this is how Peter defended himself, uh, explaining to them that he did everything according to God's word and in obedience to it. Uh, By the way, I don't have the time to get into this, but I just want to make a comment before I move on. Uh, You might be familiar in the Roman Catholic Church. Peter is revered uh, as as the, the rock upon which the church stands. It's, it's an inaccurate, wrong interpretation of the Bible. And in the Roman Catholic Church, the popes are considered to be the successors of Peter. And they are held in such high esteem and that their authority is really by all practical purpose and unquestionable. You see Peter here, when he is criticized, he doesn't throw his weight around. You know, he's the apostle. He doesn't say to his critics, how dare you question what I did? Don't you know who I am? I am Peter. I am Cephas. How dare you? No, he doesn't do that. And I think this really is instructive not only against what we see in the Roman Catholic Church, but today in so many evangelical settings where pastors virtually have uh, an office that is beyond criticism. And they hide behind the the, the office, and they cannot be questioned. Um, That is a completely different model from what we see in the New Testament. But Peter, when he was criticized, he patiently, gently explained himself from the Word of God, showing that he did everything according to God's Word and in obedience to it. And that brings us to reflect a little bit about what this challenge is, what this criticism is. And it is a recurring challenge. Notice how after Peter explained himself, we read, when they heard these things, the circumcision party, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The circumcision party was satisfied, but unfortunately, it was for the time being. They were satisfied for now. But as we read through other parts of the New Testament, we realize that their criticism, their discontent never went away, but their misgivings about accepting the Gentiles into the Jewish Christian fellowship did not disappear but it was just simmering under the surface. And so, for example, some years later, we read Paul write in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. He writes, But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, Paul writes, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, 
fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. And so what we see here is that this discontent, this misgivings, this anger against accepting the Gentile believers into the full fellowship of Jewish Christians, it never went away for some people. They may have seemed for the time content with Peter's answer, but whether it was the same group of people or other people, this is a recurring challenge that shows up. And the circumcision party complained so loudly and applied such pressure even to Peter that even Peter lost his nerve and treated the Gentile believers as unclean. Now, isn't that fascinating? Isn't that humbling? Isn't it thought-provoking? And so I think this is the right place to reflect a little bit upon uh, the the scruples that were raised against Peter. Um, There are, largely speaking, two kinds of people that disturb the peace of the church with unwarranted scruples. Now, scruples, by definition, definition, are objections and complaints that have no basis in the Bible. And so, for example, when uh, Paul criticizes Peter for his actions, it's not a scruple that he is raising. It's a necessary act of reformation and correction. So that's not what I'm talking about here. I am rather talking about the kinds of people who make an issue and disturb the peace of the church without the warrant of Scripture. And there are largely two kinds of people that do that. First, they are the believers, but they are the believers who are easily offended because they have uninstructed conscience. What do I mean by that? I mean that they are not yet mature in the Lord, and they have not yet learned to apply the gospel to the fears and to the critical spirits that lie buried deep in their hearts. Now, one of the things that happens in a Christian discipleship is that we learn to look at every part of our lives, our thinking patterns, our practice in light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that the word of God, the the, the law and the gospel begin to work in us to rearrange our mis shape and heart and put everything in the right place and order. But uh, what happens with uh, uh, believers that are not yet mature, they have not been able to do that yet. And so they have a conscience that is uninstructed and they have not been conscientious or aware even of applying the gospel to, to what they feel and what they think. And ministry to uh, these people, and for example, these are the people that we read about in Romans chapter 14 or in 1 Corinthians who were troubled that Christians were eating meat, and in some cases, meat bought from um, pagan temples. And Paul there instructs the believers, it's not an issue. 
But those that are more mature, that are more established in the faith, should be sensitive about the tender conscience of weaker brethren. And that is something that we need to take uh, to heart, of course. But at the same time, uh, sometimes people with tender conscience can hold the entire church hostage with their uninstructed conscience. And so with them, the right approach is to instruct them with patience and with love, not say to them, uh, you know, we will, uh, we will accommodate to everything that you feel and think are right. And so ministry to such people means patient instruction as we see Peter doing here. You know, Peter, he's the apostle. He's the titular head of the band of the apostles. But he doesn't throw his weight around. He gently, humbly instructs them. And that's, of course, in line with what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says to Timothy, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And that's why patience is one of the required qualifications of a preacher and a teacher because the uninstructed conscience becomes instructed conscience only with time, with patience, and with love. So on the one hand, they are the uninstructed conscience, that the, the young believers, and they often are the source of scruples, and they are sometimes can disturb the peace of the church. Sometimes, on the other hand, opposition comes from false brethren within the church. And so we read in 1 John chapter 2, for example, now John was there speaking of slightly different issue, but he is addressing people who who are claiming to be Christian teachers but teaching the wrong doctrines. In 1 John chapter 2, Apostle John says, of these false teachers, they went out from us, but they were not of us. You see, these people, they... They, by all appearance, they appear to be Christian. And they perhaps even sincerely thought that they were teaching Christian doctrine. But John knows they went out from us, but they were not of us. You see, these people, they are the the enemies of the gospel. They are the enemies of Jesus Christ. And we have to be vigilant to guard the gospel from their corrupting influence. And it's difficult to tell uh, here who these circumcision party people were, whether they were uninstructed believers who needed to be challenged with the gospel message, or whether they were spies sent by the enemy to disturb the peace and the purity of the church. My sense is that there were both types And what is clear, looking back, is that during the early church days, these people, they labored to close the church doors to Gentile believers. How dare you, Peter, that you go to the Gentiles and eat with them? How dare you acknowledge them as one of us and welcome them into fellowship? And they applied so much pressure. And you realize 
probably the only reason Peter caved into the pressure was because these pressure were coming from influential people. You know, you can always dismiss the criticism and complaints of nobodies. <laughs> it's harder to do that when they are important people. And they spoke loudly, complained loudly to shut the doors of the church to the Gentile believers. More recently in our history, the doors have been closed to those deemed to be a part of the wrong race, wrong nationality, wrong politics, wrong social standing. But every impulse to exclude people from God's kingdom without biblical warrant is an attack on the gospel. Let me say that again. Every impulse to exclude a people from God's kingdom without biblical warrant is an attack on the gospel. Because God excludes no one except those who refuse to repent and turn to Christ. That's the only basis upon which anyone is excluded from the kingdom of God, not on the basis of their race, nationality, languages that they speak, their cultural background, socioeconomic status, what have you. The point is, God makes no distinction on such grounds, and we shouldn't either. And so this is a point upon which where Christians, you and I, must be vigilant lest the enemies of the gospel and Christ shut the door of God's kingdom sinfully and unrighteously. So this is a recurring challenge that Peter will face and Paul will face, and historically speaking, the church of Jesus Christ have faced. And that brings us, uh, lastly, to the gospel of our glorious God. When the circumcision party heard Peter's defense and explanation, they, we read, they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. To the Gentiles also. Now we recently saw Saul's conversion, didn't we? Saul was a self-righteous and angry Jewish scholar. And he was saved when he repented and turned to the Lord Jesus. And then we saw Cornelius' conversion. Cornelius was a kind-hearted Gentile soldier. The two cannot be more different. And Cornelius was saved when he repented and turned to the Lord Jesus. You see, both Saul and Cornelius, they were baptized and they were counted as God's people exactly on the same basis of faith and repentance. Neither Saul's knowledge of Scripture 
nor Cornelius' good works of giving alms to people exempted them from needing Christ. They both had to believe. They both had to repent. But the moment they embraced Christ, they were both forgiven and accepted and received the Spirit of Christ as a seal and as an earnest of their forgiveness and glory. Faith and repentance is the one and the only way anyone and everyone can come to Christ. And it's really remarkable what the circumcision party came to realize here. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has granted repentance. That is to say, repentance is God's gracious gift. But it is a gift we often dread to receive. Because what is repentance? Repentance means that we acknowledge our present course of life will lead to spiritual ruin and death, to judgment and the ultimate exclusion from the kingdom of God. And so in repentance, we acknowledge that our spiritual condition as we are living at the moment is is a path that is bound to lead us to ruin and death. So in repentance, we acknowledge that we, we need to be rescued. That is why repentance is never just saying, I feel sorry, I feel really bad about what I did. That's not repentance. Repentance is recognizing, Jesus, only you can rescue me. I have sinned against you. And I receive gladly, humbly, your shed blood on the cross and your perfect righteousness. No one but you can save me. That's what repentance is. Not merely saying to God or to yourself, you know, I feel really bad about that. I know better. That's not who I am. That's not repentance. Repentance is recognizing on the one hand, I'm headed in the wrong way and I will die. And on the other hand, recognizing my only solution is to be rescued. I cannot save myself. I cannot forgive myself because I have sinned against God. But Jesus and Jesus alone can and will rescue me. But the thing of that is that this is a very painful thing to acknowledge. Often, when someone passes away, when I'm sure you've been to memorial services or funeral services like this, while remembering the deceased, you hear the song, I did it my way. I like Frank Sinatra. I'm a big fan of American classics and jazz. And, you know, when you hear that voice singing, you know, it moves you. I like Frank Sinatra. I got nothing against him. Oh, but it is so sad when you go to a memorial service or funeral service 
and what you hear is, I did it my way, as if that is any comfort whatsoever. As if that makes anything better about death. As if that gives you any hope. When people sing, I did it my way, it's the anthem of a hopeless and lost people. Because as scripture says, there is a way that seems good to a man, but its end is death. But when believers die in the Lord, the song that we sing is not, I did it my way, but it's all the way my Savior leads me. It's the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me down to lie in green pastures. Goodness and mercy all my days shall surely follow me. And in the house of God, forevermore my dwelling place shall be. That's our anthem. That's the hope. And that's the beauty of every believer who came to trust in Jesus Christ and who have with faith embraced him and who with repentance asked Jesus to rescue me, save me. You will not hear such depressing, sorrowful ditty as I did it my way at Bruce's service. The song that we will sing is that the Lord is our shepherd. But in order for us to get there, we need to repent. And this is a difficult gift to receive. I wonder if God and His Spirit is convicting you of sin. And it is a deeply uncomfortable experience. And our instinct is to deny, become angry, and pretend that we do not need to repent. Beloved ones, if the Lord and His Spirit is convicting you of your sin, understand this that unless you lay that sin at the foot of the cross, unless you repent, unless ask you, ask Jesus to rescue you, there is no hope for you. The path that you are on, it will kill you. But if you can receive this uncomfortable gift as a gift of loving and gracious heart, then you will find life. Would you turn to Jesus and would you ask him to rescue you? And he will. And you will find life and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Thank you, O God, for the word that we have read and heard this morning. And we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose death and resurrection. Our sins are forgiven, and we are restored into your grace and into your kingdom. And I pray, O Lord, that 
that we may always be men and women who glory in the cross of Jesus Christ and find our hope and joy in your promises. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.